the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we'll talk with Michael Barone, author of How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. It's really a fascinating, rather small book. He'll join us later this hour. We'll also talk with Mike Gonzalez in the 5 o'clock hour, senior fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy with the Heritage Foundation. We'll talk about China's effort to control what Americans think and what they say, both here and abroad. Mike Gonzalez joining us later in the second hour of today's program. Well, October 31st, which of course isn't today, it's tomorrow, is um, Reformation Day. It was that day, 1517, that Brother Martin Martin Luther, a monk and a scholar, had struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He'd been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented indulgence sale. The story has all the markings of a Hollywood blockbuster. Among the cast, first, there's the young bishop, too young by church uh, laws, Albert of Mines. Uh, Not only was he bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional archbishopric over Mines. Um, this, too, was against church law. So Albert appealed to the Pope in Rome, Leo X, from the de' Medici family. Leo X greedily allowed his tastes to exceed his financial resources. Enter the artists and sculptors of the day, Raphael and Michelangelo. Well, when Albert of Mines appealed to a papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with the papal blessing, would sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. All of this sickened the monk, Martin Luther. Can you buy your way to heaven? Well, apparently you can at least buy your way out of purgatory. That was the line of reasoning at the time. Luther said to himself, I must speak out. Why on October 31st, you might ask? Well, November 1st held a special place in the church calendar as All Saints Day. We'll talk about that, too, later in the program. On November 1st, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Uh, Pilgrims, in fact, if you come to the station here during the show, there's a relic here in the studio doing the show daily. Anyway, pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds, if not thousands, of years off their time in purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. So Martin Luther, a scholar, took quill in hand, dipped it in the inkwell, and penned his 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. It went much further than that, as history tells us. The 95 Theses, they sparked far more than a debate. They um, also revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation. It needed a reformation. The church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 Theses simply declares the obvious. The church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now, you might think, well, why would that need to be stated or restated? Well, when you get to a point where that is no longer a central or core value, then it has to be said. Well, that alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long prepared, rather uh, papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Good thing we don't do that today, right? Hmm. Tradition always brings about systems of works, of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of medieval Roman Catholicism and maybe true of some of us today. Didn't Christ himself say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Well, Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Well, what is Reformation Day? Well, it's the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of the darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was an imperfect movement. It was not intended to unfold as it did. And it was led by, or at least sparked by, an imperfect man. It was the day that led Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Cox, and many other reformers helping the church to find its way back to the Word of God as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing, and it led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. So we celebrate on the 31st, which of course is tomorrow, Reformation Day. This day reminds us to be thankful for our past and uh, to the monk turned reformer. What's more, this day reminds us of uh, our duty, our obligation, our privilege to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all we do as well without becoming distracted. Well, the question might be asked, so where do Christians belong on Halloween? It happens to also be Halloween. All Saints Day, which we'll talk about later in the program, is November 1st. We'll kind of put this all into perspective later. But I appreciated Tony Kriz writing for um, Christianity Today, pointing out that Halloween, who would have thought that a national costume party would be such a complicated endeavor and an unexpected opportunity for Christians? Now, you might be scratching your heads. Opportunity for Christians? Well, it goes on by writing, I have a friend named Jason. He was the underpastor at a fairly large, successful church in the Midwest. A couple of autumns ago, Jason's boss pulled him aside and asked him to represent the pastoral team at the church's harvest party a sacred replacement for the pagan Halloween. Well, Jason was a natural choice for the festival responsibilities. He was a pastor in the church. Everyone knew and liked him. He had young children, so his official responsibilities could be easily harmonized with his family duties. You could think that Jason um, would have jumped at the opportunity, but it didn't sit quite right with him. Well, you might wonder, why not? Well, the problem wasn't the event, not at all. It was both an appropriate and enjoyable opportunity as a young pastor. The thing that needled him was the thought of leaving his neighborhood on the one night of the year when his neighbors came to his house unsolicited, knocked on the door, and even, (laughs) uh, if just for a moment, acted like, well, neighbors. Well, Jason understood the church's reason for a harvest party. Halloween was about zombies and ghouls and witches, things that celebrate darkness and evil. Are those things appropriate for children? On the other hand, we could argue with the theme of the harvest. Even Jesus told stories about harvesting, like the one about the wheat and the tares, which tells the eternal judgment and damnation, which is clearly a children's story. Oh, wait a minute. Well, no, maybe not. Well, Jason wondered, as a person of faith, is it my calling to be the chief religious person on my block focused on religious events and ceremonies, or is it my calling to be my neighbors in a faithful way? This is a false dichotomy, of course, but you get the point. It's that sacred sacred versus secular thing that so often 
uh, confronts us. Well, as a sacred person, I am called to avoid pagan or secular events, or is it my responsibility to bring my sacredness to them? Well, certainly the prophet Daniel would have something to say about all of this. He was only a boy when he was taken to Babylon. While there, he fully participated in society and was able to study and understand magic and astrology, but better than the Babylonian teacher, according to Daniel 1, 18 through 20. But apparently, all of this service of God, he was a faithful participant in the most pagan of societies. Recently, I sat with a group of wonderful folks, the Parish Collective, a group of committed, um, uh, rather committed to expressing Christian uh, Christianity through integrated neighborhoods. We studied the story of Tabitha in Acts 9. We'll tell you more about that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Michael Barone will join me later this hour. In fact, let you in on a little secret. He'll be in on the next segment. There you have it. Uh, just winding through a Christianity Today article written by, um, where is his name? Um, Tony Kriz might be a familiar name to many of you, on where does a Christian belong on Halloween? And it's uh, really uh, chronicling the story of a young man who is overseeing a, a, a rather large church as one of the pastors there and was asked to attend the harvest party, which meant he wouldn't be home for uh, the trick-or-treaters who were coming to their door. And I know some of you might be offended by the use of the phrase, but just stay with me for a moment. Uh, he meant, uh, met with a, a group of uh, wonderful folks. They're called the Parish Collective, and they're committed to expressing their Christianity through their neighborhoods. And they studied the story of Tabitha from Acts 9. Now, it's interesting because, as some of you, I'm going to Bible Study Fellowship, and that's right where we are. Well, the story of Tabitha, called Dorcas by her pagan neighbors, is a lovely story of healing, of hope, neighboring, neighborly participation. One of the things that really shocked uh, the group was how beloved she was by her Greek or pagan neighbors. The widows who lived all around her wept uncontrollably over her death. The sorrow was uh, not the product of a fleeting or momentary relationship. The story was that the widows d- displayed the evidence of Tabitha's long and serving presence with them. She had practiced faithful participation among her neighbors. Now, keep in mind that this faithful participation among pagans was before Peter's vision that took him to Cornelius's house. Uh, In this vision, God clarified to Peter that the Gentiles were truly part of God's gospel commission. Peter's vision happens in the next chapter, chapter 10 of Acts, and one must wonder if the profound example of Tabitha had prepared Peter's heart, as did other things leading up to it, for his change in theology that God revealed to him. Well, the love and devotion between Tabitha and her neighbors had been built over thousands of unexceptional days uh, and uh, encounters. I imagine her passing, he writes, um, her passing her um, uh, neighbors along the street, greeting them in the market, lingering together in shaded conversations away from the sun. Uh, It probably also involved more than a few funerals. Her neighbors were widows living in a military town. Most of it was probably pretty unglamorous stuff. They were daily, often anonymous encounters of kingdom love. Tabitha was a beacon of faithful participation. It's even more remarkable when you consider who she was and where she was living and under what circumstances. Well, faithful participation happens when we coach Little League, attend neighborhood association meetings, volunteer at the local school. Faithful participation happens when we choose to play plant our garden in the front instead of the backyard so that our neighbors and uh, on weekends we can uh, greet our neighbors who are passing by 
um, and sometimes passing out the zucchinis. Faithful participation happens when we choose to spend an unstructured Saturday morning in the neighborhood coffee house or an evening on the front porch instead of hiding away in the TV room. It's found in the daily, often anonymous encounters of kingdom love. Faithful participation might also mean attending more than a few funerals along the way. So Pastor Jason, back to the original story, um, he decided that even though the Harvest Festival was important, the opportunity to be at home greeting his neighbors was more important. He explained his heart to his boss, the pastor, and graciously released um, was graciously released from his church responsibility on the 31st of October. Now, while it is Reformation Day, it's also Halloween for most of our neighbors. Jason went home and armed with a heaping bowl of sweets, spent the uh, evening in his entryway. Every time there was a knock, he opened the door with a grin on his face, a greeting. He knew a few of the children's names and complimented them on their creative costumes. His real joy was found in the parent um, chaperones, some names he knew and so many he didn't. He saw the couple who lived two blocks over who loved to work their garden In the five years in the neighborhood, though, he had uh, greeted them many times. He had never actually learned their names, asked them about themselves. He made a mental note and promised himself that he wouldn't forget. He met the man who owns the neighborhood grocery store and even got a smile out of the grumpy president of the local PTA. All the while, he was adding to the mental map the names and faces of his neighborhood. All through the evening, Jason marveled. Not only was he participating with the neighbors during a pagan holiday, but the holiday itself was actually funneling his neighbors to his front door. He thought, if that isn't just like God, I don't know what is. Now, um, it's an interesting approach. Uh, Again, this is a Christianity Today article. Where does a Christian belong on Halloween? Faithful participation in our communities is a powerful church value. One of the options to consider in the midst of it all. So wanted to share that with you later in the program. We'll talk about Reformation Day, what it is, why it's on the 31st of October and All Saints Day, which is November the 1st and the connection to Halloween and the word hallow, which is part of that name. Taking a look at some of the day's news, House Republican leaders in a fiery news conference on Tuesday said House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff was almost acting like a lawyer for a witness in the latest impeachment hearing and kept him from answering Uh, certain questions from Republican members. Representative Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan told reporters that Schiff shut down a Republican line of questioning during a hearing of um, Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who serves as the director of the National Security Council. When we asked Vindman who he spoke to after the important events in July, Adam Schiff says, no, 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 we're not going to let him answer that question, Jordan said. In an interview on Tuesday, Representative Devin Nunez, the top Republican on the House Intelligence Committee, accused Accused Schiff of coaching Vindman uh, and called the impeachment process under his leadership and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi unprecedented. In his prepared opening statements, Vindman expressed concern over the president's request to have Ukraine investigate political opponents and said he did not know the identity of the whistleblower, a blower rather, whose complaint sparked the House Democrats' formal impeachment inquiry. House Democrats on Tuesday introduced a resolution to formalize their impeachment inquiry and adopt rules to govern the proceedings. But one Democratic lawmaker doubts he will support it. Representative Jeff Van Drew, New Jersey, said he hasn't seen anything impeachable yet by Mr. Trump uh, and doesn't think he will vote to formalize an impeachment inquiry. I would imagine that I'm not voting for it, he said, speaking to NBC reporters. Van Drew, who normally defeated his um, 
rather narrowly defeated his GOP rival in 2018 in New Jersey's second congressional district, had openly criticized impeachment, saying it would further divide the country and put members of his party at risk in the 2020 elections. He's among a handful of Democrats who continue to lean away from a formal push for impeachment, despite ongoing depositions of witnesses by three House committees spearheading that probe. Mm. Well, the Getty fire in Los Angeles, which has destroyed a dozen homes and forced many people, including some celebrities. And I should mention some Salem uh, employees or um, corporate headquarters are in that area. And some some of them have been uh, evacuated. Others are waiting for the word. Uh, smoke inhalation is a real problem there. Anyway, including some celebrities to escape the area has sparked Uh, by a tree branch that fell on top of a power line ignited nearby bushes, according to officials. This was simply put in uh, in plain parlance, an act of God, Mayor Garcetti said during a news conference. Garcetti stressed that the blaze was not the result of faulty equipment. Utilities in the state have come under scrutiny from customers and public officials in recent years for their roles in several massive wildfires. Still, firefighters battling the Getty blaze received a small bit of good news Tuesday. Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron LeBron James One of many Southern California residents forced to leave their homes this week sent a taco truck to feed first responders. Representative Ilhan Omar on Tuesday refused to support a congressional resolution recognizing the Armenian genocide, saying it was important first to condemn the preceding mass slaughter of hundreds of millions of indigenous people as well as the transatlantic slave trade. Omar, in a statement explaining her vote of present on the resolution, also seemingly suggested the century-old mass killings of Armenians by Ottoman Turks may not have occurred at all. Washington Nationals ace Steven Strasburg took a gym into the ninth inning, and Juan Soto ran all the way to first base with his bat following a go-ahead home run, the same way Houston Astros slugger Alex Bergman did earlier. Yep, these Nationals have matched the uh, Astros pitch for pitch, hit for hit, win for win, Even home run celebration for home run celebration. An interesting series to watch. Well, the D.C. Circuit Court has halted disclosures of the Mueller grand jury materials to consider an emergency appeal. And the State Department has launched an investigation into deep state targeting of the president's top Iran official. The House has passed the Armenian genocide measure. No thanks to Ilhan Omar. Elizabeth Warren has pledged to crack down on school choice despite sending her own son to an elite private school. Well, there are always exceptions. And the NC2A will allow athletes to profit from their name, image and likeness in a major shift for the organization. China has dumped 27 percent more trash into the ocean in 2018 than previous years. And a forensic investigator says that Jeffrey Epstein's autopsy is more consistent with homicide. John Legend and Kelly Clarkson have remade the the song, rather, Baby, It's Cold Outside, after critics said it promoted date rape. Well, they make reference to abortion in the song. Won't bother to go over the lyrics at this time. On this day in history, 1974, Muhammad Ali knocks out George Foreman in the eighth round of a 15-round bout in Kinshasa. Uh, in Chasha, I should say Kinshasa. I see your expression, Clark. Zaire, now the Republic of Congo, known as the Rumble in the Jungle to regain his world heavyweight title. I should have skipped it all together. On this day in history, 1961, the Soviet Union tests a hydrogen bomb, the Tsar Bomba, with a force estimated at about 50 megatons. On this day in 1975, the New York Daily News runs the headline, Ford to City, Drop Dead, a day after President Gerald Ford says he would veto any proposed federal bailout of New York City. And on this day in 2009, a federal jury in Miami convicts the son of former Liberian President Charles Taylor for the first case brought under the 1994 
for law allowing prosecution for torture and atrocities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back with Michael Barone in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the election of 2016 prompted journalists and political scientists to write obituaries for the Republican Party, or prophecies of a new dominance. But... It was all rather familiar. Whenever one of the two great parties says a setback, we heard this is the end of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party is going out of existence. Yet both parties survive and, well, they thrive. Well, in how America's political parties change and how they don't, my next guest, American Enterprise Institute resident fellow Michael Barone, a renowned expert on American politics, contends that America's major political parties remain exceptionally resilient even in the face of Donald Trump's unexpected victory and the hysterical analysis that it spawned. He argues that throughout American history, both parties have maintained their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. Well, Michael Barone brings a deep understanding of our electoral history. Uh, He illuminates how both parties have adapted swiftly or haltingly to shifting opinion and emerging issues, to economic change and cultural currents, to demographic flux. At the same time, each has maintained a constant character. We'll ask him about that. There are They are the yin and yang, he writes, of the American political life, together providing vehicles for expressing most citizens' views in a nation that has always been culturally, religiously, economically, and ethnically diverse. Well, Michael Barone is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, and author of the new book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. He's one of our nation's most renowned political analysts, co-author of The Almanac of American Politics since its first edition, and author of several other books. We are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, Georgine, and you gave a uh, very apt summary of my latest little book, America's, uh, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Uh, (laughs) It's based on, it's a short book, but it's based on my more than 50 years of experience of observing, participating in commenting on uh, America's political system and par- our partisan election. When I first read the the title of the book, I, f- I found it interesting, but I find the book so much more interesting than I anticipated and learned far more than I expected uh, from, as you po- point out, this little book. Um, let's talk about the, America's two major political parties. Uh, you point out that um, America is home to the oldest and third oldest political parties in the world. Tell us a little bit about the Democratic Party founded in 1832, and the Republican Party, founded in 1854? Well, the Democratic Party, founded 187 years ago to secure the re-election of Andrew Jackson and to prevent the uh, rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. Um, They were successful in accomplishing those goals uh, within less than a decade. The Republican Party founded 165 years ago to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act that allowed slavery in territories, the territories where it had previously been forbidden, and uh, to prevent the spread of slavery. And, of course, the Republican Party was successful within 11 years, not only preventing the spread of slavery, but in abolishing slavery altogether with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. But the parties went on, and they've had this basic, each of them has had its basic character, um, even while they changed position on substantive issues. 
over a long period of time. The Republican Party has always been centered on a core constituency made up of people who are widely considered to be typical Americans, but who by themselves are not a majority. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of outgroups of people who consider themselves members of uh, groups that are not typical Americans, but who put together when they stick together, which they don't always do, when they stick together can be a majority. Uh, And that's as true today as it was in 1832 and 1854. You make the point that America's major political parties remain durable and adaptable. And I think many people are questioning that today as third parties emerge or independents are emerging. Do you see the trend that has survived over many, many years continuing even under today's uh, what we consider from our vantage point rather unique set of circumstances? Well, I, I, I think it's likely that they'll continue. Nothing is certain in uh, politics or Democratic-Republican uh, governance. But uh, the fact is these parties have each suffered uh, electoral setbacks much worse mm-hmm. than anything we've seen in the last 30 years. The Democrats won a huge victory. The Republicans suffered a huge defeat in 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt won the first of four elections. Uh, that gave us the the New Deal historians have told this story vividly, and it's a familiar one to people acquainted with American political history. But the Democratic Party also suffered a huge reverse in 1920. Uh, Their candidate, after eight years of the Democrat Woodrow Wilson as president, they had inflation, we had uh, uh, recession, we had an influenza epidemic, we had an inconclusive conclusion to World War I, and, um, and a presidential uh, a president who had a stroke and was out of contact with the outer world uh, for at least eight months. And that uh, Democratic Party got only 34 percent of the vote. And yet the Democratic Party rebounded to become competitive with the Republicans in 10 years, just as the Republican Party became competitive with Democrats within 10 years after their huge defeat in 1932. Um, these parties represent uh, forces that are uh, pretty basic in American life, and uh, they just don't go away after they've suffered a big defeat. Uh, they recover, they uh, change their positions, they adapt to new times, and they take advantage of the incumbent party's mistakes. Given that history, and perhaps because that history is little known, why is it so common for journalists and political scientists to forecast the permanent triumph or imminent demise of our major political parties once there's been an electoral win or defeat. I've heard it over the course of my lengthening years uh, so many times that one party or the other is drawing to a close because of the outcome of the latest electoral challenge. Well, there's a in journalism, which I've been participating in or observing closely for more than 50 years. Um, there's a, a premium on being the first one with a story, on leading the pack, on, on sniffing out an emerging trend before everybody else does. So there's a tendency to say, well, the Democratic Party is through uh, when they've uh, you know, lost an election, when the Republican president's been reelected with 51% of the vote, as happened in 2004. Uh, or after President Obama was reelected in 2012, again with 51% of the vote, the Republican Party is through. Um, people tend to forget when you made false predictions of something that uh, never comes to pass. But uh, if, you, if you're out there first with something that does happen, um, there's a professional premium. And they think. <laughs> That's perhaps kind of a cynical view. But, you know, it, it, one of the things you want to do in journalism is to try to spot emerging trends, try to spot stories that other people have missed. 
Um, and sometimes, of course, that produces very productive journalism. The other factor operating is that many of these stories are written by optimists and who are partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people predicting the demise of the Republican Party tend to be optimistic Democrats. Uh, when pe- predictors of the uh, of the demise of, of 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 the Democratic Party will come from optimistic Republicans or pessimistic Democrats, <laughs> which undermines the credibility of journalism in general and partisans in particular. One of the the cases that you make. Let me just say this: I appreciate that in the book how America's political parties change and how they don't. You give us a context and history that helps us make sense of our current day so that we are a little more cautious in embracing, you know, the latest pronouncement. But one of the things that I found rather interesting is the point you make that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both maintain their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. I think people sometimes wonder if a party has moved too far in one direction. For example, the argument now is that Democrats are moving far too far to the left. Are they maintaining their um, their core um, values, their essential character, or are we seeing just the common shifts and adjustments that we've seen over uh, the years? Well, politicians are optimists usually, and uh, they sometimes overestimate the extent to which public opinion is in line with their own uh, policies. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, or they simply stay true to policies they back, even though the public doesn't go along with them. So you saw the Democratic Party lose five out of six presidential elections from 1968 to 88, um, coming right after most political observers said, gee, the Democrats have a natural majority in this country. They proceed to lose five out of six elections. At least some of those, their nominees were well to the left of the par- of, of where the public was uh, at that time. And uh, you know, eventually Bill Clinton came along, secured a Democratic nomination, which almost nobody seemed to want that year, and uh, came out with a somewhat more moderate platform that adjusted to uh, what, pre- you know, the, the problems that were li- the programs that were liabilities for previous Democratic nominees, um, and he won the election. Uh, and Democrats have won four out of the next seven out of the seven um, presidential elections that followed, even as Republicans won majorities in the uh, House of Representatives in most of the congressional elections. So, you know, uh, politics, uh, political uh, programs, uh, politicians, uh, uh, platforms are a mixture of uh, calculation and, and conviction, yeah. um, things they believe to be right and things they believe could be popular. Um, the proportions of calculation and conviction vary in the different politicians. Uh, and sometimes there can be, uh, you know, more conviction uh, than there is calculation, and they find that they lose. But sooner or later, as we've seen over 187, 165 years, they adjust. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with uh, my guest, Michael Barone, the book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Fascinating analysis. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Michael Barone. The book is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. I think you will find much surprising information in the book as well as very relevant history. Let's talk about the essential characteristics of both the Republican and Democrat Party. What are those characteristics? And I know that there's some blurring of lines, although with the 2016 election, perhaps less so. What are some of these uh, essential characteristics? 
Well, the essential characteristic of the Republican Party, I think, over the years has been that it's centered on a core constituency of people who are considered by themselves and others to be typical Americans, but by themselves are are not a majority of the public. They need more votes in order to win. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of opposites of different groups considered not to be typical Americans, but who, if they're united, make up a majority. So in the 19th century, um, the Andrew Jackson coalition was Southern slaveholders and later segregationists on the one hand, and uh, Catholic immigrants in big cities. Uh, they basically, the Democrats believed in segregation in the South and the saloon in the North. Um, and uh, the Republican core constituency in its beginnings in the 1850s were New England Yankees and their offspring who moved westward across the Young Republic to upstate New York, uh, northern Ohio, southern Michigan, founded the city of Chicago, moved on beyond to Iowa and Nebraska. That was the core support for the Republican Party. Um, And today, obviously, you have different coalitions. The core Republican constituency, I I would characterize as white married Christians, thought by many people to be typical Americans. Uh, Once people fulfilling that description were a majority of the population, they're not a majority anymore. Uh, and uh, But they're a large group, and they are faithful to the Republican Party by and large, and uh, the, Re- the Republicans try to build majorities from there. Uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of outside groups. If you look at the groups that typically vote 85 to 90 percent Democratic, you see uh, relatively low-income, non-college graduate black Americans, uh, very religious, tend to be avid churchgoers and believe in traditional relig- Christian morality, uh, and uh, what my friend Joel Kotkin calls gentry liberals, uh, high-income people with uh, college degrees, graduate school degrees, uh, white people, uh, very secular. Very, This is the group that is least likely to believe in traditional uh, religions and more likely to believe uh, in, in, uh, in, in that religious conduct should not in any way be privileged and kind of dubious about uh, the, how far the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment should go. Um, those are groups that have very different incomes. They have very different uh, religious beliefs and beliefs about the price of religion and public life and public issues. Um, they have very different views on, for example, same-sex marriage, uh, but uh, they are united in supporting the Democratic Party, at least if somebody doesn't come forward and spotlight those issues and make them the biggest issues of the day. How did the two parties evolve in the 20th century, and how do you see that either continuing or changing in the 21st? Well, the Democratic Party in the 20th century uh, was a party that for many years contained a large conservative bloc as well as Mm -hmm. uh, Democratic liberals who backed the policies, the big government policies of Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, The conservative group came partly from the Democrats' 19th century support of free markets and free trade. Uh, didn't believe in government interference. Obviously, that changes under Wilson and Roosevelt, but many Democrats continue to identify with that. And it comes from Democrats, Southern Democrats in particular, um, carrying a Democratic uh, Party identification that goes back to the Civil War and to 
um, opposition to the conduct of the Civil War or the aftermath, with opposition to Republicans' attempts to secure equal rights for black Americans in Reconstruction period. And um, that lasts a long time because the Civil War was a hugely searing event. I mean, go to any small town uh, that had, you know, a thousand people in a township in uh, in the 1860s, and in the town, in the courthouse square, there's a monument there in the north and in the south. Uh, it's a monument of with names of people who died in that Civil War, 30, 40, 50 names in a town of a thousand. That was a really searing impact. So you have in 1960, the um, John F. Kennedy, liberal Democrat, Catholic from Massachusetts, his number two state in percentage terms was Georgia, southern Georgia, Baptist state, uh, you know, a, a, a conservative state on a number of issues and most black people in Georgia then were not allowed to vote. Um, they, why did they vote for Kennedy? Well, it was only 96 years since General Sherman's troops marched through Georgia and they were mm. still angry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so attitudes changed as uh, President Jimmy Carter from South Georgia um, is a good example uh, of that. Uh, his political views, I think, during his presidency evolved significantly and in a positive direction, in my opinion, uh, from what those he probably held as a younger man in segregated Georgia. Um, but the, uh, you know, that, that took a long time to change because the impact of the Civil War was so great. Um, likewise, you have liberal Republicans uh, in many of the northern states uh, and in some of the southern states, too, although they seldom won statewide elections there before the 1970s. And they were, uh, why were they, you know, they supported many of the New Deal government expansion programs, people like Governor, four-term Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York. But they opposed, why did they oppose the Democrats? Well, they felt the Democrats ran corrupt urban political machines. They felt the Democrats uh, were dependent on the votes of violent, prone labor unions. They disliked the Democrats because they had a lot of segregationist Southerners in their party. Um, that was true in 1960. By the 1980s, those factors had really kind of vanished from the political scene, and Nelson Rockefeller's heirs, including his nephew, Jay Rockefeller, ran for office and won as a Democrat. Mm. In what ways um, have the parties not changed in, in uh, nod to the subtitle of your book? Well, not changed. I think that same basic character. Republicans clustered around a core constituency. Democrats, a... Uh, a coalition of of of, uh, of, of various groups, mm-hmm. of groups that are often have conflicts among each other. I mean, you know, the Demo- the the we, this year we see voters who identify themselves as Republicans are giving ninety percent support to Donald Trump. That's even though he is different on some issues like trade, immigration, and some aspects of foreign policy from the previous, most recent Republican president, George W. Bush, uh, for whom people who identified as Republicans gave 85 to 90 percent support as well. So the Republicans tend to support their incumbents in most circumstances. Uh, Democratic Party, we see some uh, differences on cultural issues in the Democratic Party. I noted that the presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke from El Paso, Texas, uh, said that he doesn't uh, want uh, he doesn't want ta- he wants tax exemptions to be taken away from churches mm-hmm. and religious institutions that don't perform same sex marriage. 
Well, that's going to close a bunch of Roman Catholic churches and uh, welfare institutions in his hometown of uh, El Paso, Texas, where they serve a predominantly Mexican-American population. It's going to close down or severely impact uh, historically black churches, which have played a tremendous, go back to it before the Civil War, and have played a tremendously constructive role in American life for uh, almost two centuries. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't, uh, conduct same sex marriages. Uh, so that's, you know, Beto O'Rourke right now is uh, not running well in the polls. And that statement probably didn't get a lot of traction among Democrats. But, uh, I think that, uh, if you were running ads for another candidate, Democratic candidate, you want to win, uh, votes of black Americans who are a majority of the Democratic primary turnout in South Carolina, the early state of South Carolina, uh, you might want to bring up that issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book, once again, is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And rather than a dry, uninteresting tome, it is fascinating in its historic detail and relevance to not only what's what we've seen in the past, but what's happening today. Michael Barone, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for talking. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your kind words. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. In the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation. China's uh, trying to control what Americans think, produce, and say. We'll find out how. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. During this hour, we're going to talk with Mike Gonzalez. He's a senior fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about China's effort to control what Americans think and say. We're talking about censorship, essentially. Mike Gonzalez will join us later this hour. Well, a majority of young Americans, including those who are college age, support rewriting the First Amendment to adjust for Hate speech. That's in quotes, by the way. This is according to a new poll. A recent survey conducted by the Campaign for Free Speech asked 1,004 people about their attitudes about the First Amendment. The results published on Wednesday show that a majority of young adults believe the First Amendment goes too far in allowing hate speech and should be updated. Goes too far. While 78% of young adults age 18 to 34 understand the meaning of the First Amendment as written as allowing anyone to say their opinion no matter what, and they are protected by law from any consequence of saying uh, those thoughts or opinions, most support altering the amendment in one form or another, including 7 out of 10 who said the speech of certain ideological groups should be more restricted. I don't like what you have to say. I should be able to limit that, and there should be a, a, a penalty. When asked whether the First Amendment should be updated to adjust for hate speech and reflect the cultural norms of today, 59% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 were in favor of such an update. Just 33% opposed such a change, with the other 8% saying they're not sure. When asked more directly if hate speech should be against the law, 50 percent of people within the same age group answered yes. And 47 percent said that an an appropriate consequence for hate speech would include possible jail time. Well, an overwhelming majority of young adults agree that the government should uh, be able to take action against newspapers and television stations that publish content that is biased, inflammatory, or false. Now, who determines what's inflammatory, biased, and false is another question, with 63% of people between the ages of 18 and 34 agreeing to such a policy. 36% agreed 
uh, possibly uh, possible jail time as an appropriate punishment for individuals as media outlets that published such content. Huh. The survey also asked about uh, alternative media, such as online podcasts, which allow anyone to say anything regardless of its accuracy. Thirty four percent of young adults said that they would support a government agency reviewing content put out by these alternative media sources. Free speech. um or I should say speech first, President Nicole Neely reacted to these results in a statement to campus reform saying these numbers are absolutely devastating. They reflect a profound misunderstanding, not only of the importance of free speech, but also the history of free speech and the First Amendment, the role of limited government and the freedom and liberty that we have cherished throughout the nation's history, whether or not it was equally applied. It has always been cherished. Free speech is not a partisan issue, she continued. It's the right that benefits all Americans, and in particular, the powerless, the unpopular and minority viewpoints. A government that has the authority to decide what speech is acceptable and what is not can very easily squelch dissent. And that should concern rather horrify everyone. But that's where we stand. These are young people who have gone through the public education system. And this is the result of the poll. And then there's this. Seventy percent of millennials say they'd vote for a socialist. Young Americans continue to lose faith in capitalism and embrace socialism, according to a new YouGov slash Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation survey of more than 2000 Americans, 16 years and older. Well, why does it matter? Well, Bernie Sanders, who is a self-avowed democratic socialist, is one of the top presidential candidates in the 2020 Democratic field. You add the word democratic to socialist and somehow it's supposed to feel better. His flagship health care proposal, Medicare for All, has driven the national conversation and moved the Democratic Party significantly to the left, even almost among rather candidates like Elizabeth Warren, who consider themselves capitalists. Well, 50 percent of millennials and 51 percent of Generation Z have a somewhat or very unfavorable view of capitalism. Increases of eight and Six percentage points uh, from last year. Meanwhile, the share of millennials who say they're extremely likely to vote for a candidate who identifies as a socialist has doubled. Now, when's the last time you heard a favorable report, say, in the mainstream media about capitalism, explaining how it's um, superior to socialism and what reasons they would uh, would offer to talk about the cautions associated with it? But when uh, exercised in the uh, in the right way. It is the uh, the best opportunity for freedom that the world has known. Well, back to the survey. Nearly half of Gen Z and millennial uh, respondents said they felt the U.S. economic system worked against them more than other generations. We talked weeks ago now explaining how they arrive at that decision based on what historically their great grandparents, grandparents and now parents Uh, had the opportunity to enjoy. They've grown up in a capitalist country where economic inequality has continued to climb. Well, many are burdened with college debt, have seen little wage growth and face the threat of job loss due to automation, all while the top 1% continue to accumulate wealth. Socialism and communism also don't bring the same negative associations as they once did and memories uh, that the older generation still holds. Even the oldest millennials were just children when the Berlin Wall fell. And by the way, Uh, Portions of that wall were at the Reagan Library that was preserved earlier today. Well, 19 percent of millennials and 12 percent of Generation Z said that they thought the Communist Manifesto better guarantees freedom and equality for all than the Declaration of Independence. That's compared to just 2 percent of baby boomers and 5 percent of Gen X. Just 7 percent of boomers said that they had at least a somewhat favorable view of communism, 7 percent compared to more than a third of millennials and more than a quarter of Gen Z. Young people. 
People's political views often change as they grow older, or not, but their support of socialist ideas and leaders is a sign that the old rules of politics are changing. They're changing fast and not necessarily for the better. And then finally this, the decline in faith is a danger to American liberty and may explain at least in part the what I would describe as decline in appreciation, regard, and understanding of our nation's history. A new survey by the Pew Research Center presents an ominous warning sign for the durability of the American experiment in liberty and self-governance. The uprising results um, are rather unsurprising results based on a 2018-2019 telephone survey showed that American... Uh, America, rather, is becoming a less religious nation. Today, just 65 percent of Americans describe themselves as Christian compared to 77 percent in 2009. The dramatic drop cuts across every demographic and nearly every denomination. And with an 8 percent drop among Protestants, um, Catholics in May, the nation's largest Protestant group, the Southern Baptist Convention, reported a decline in membership for the 12th consecutive year. It now stands at 14.8 million members, down from 192,000, or rather uh, by 192,000 from 2017. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is not an Orthodox Christian denomination, but nonetheless a, uh, a large religious group in our country, held steady at 2% of the population. Non-Christian faiths, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, saw a slight increase from 2009 from 5% uh, to 7% today. By contrast, self-described atheists doubled from 2 to 4%. Agnostics increased from 3 to 5%. And 17% of Americans now say their religion is nothing in particular uh, from 12% a decade ago. Well, frequency of church attendance has also declined, with those saying they attend church once or twice a month, dropping by 7%. The drop also seems to be generational. 48% of baby boomers, 47% of Gen Xers attend church weekly or once or twice a month compared to just 35% of millennials. The reasons for these declines are complex and intertwined. The Catholic Church and Southern Baptist Convention are struggling to deal with scandals surrounding sexual abuse by clergy. The United Methodist Church is dealing with a growing schism over accommodation and inclusion of LGBT members as related to established biblical doctrine. The resurgence Eric Erickson theorizes on another factor, the religiously, um, I should say, the religiosity of parents. He notes that parents have a lot to do with the faith of their children and to the extent that baby boomers identify as Christian but have a deeply shallow faith, their millennial children do too. He continues, the doctrines of the church are falling by the wayside as even some Orthodox church transition their scriptural exposition to self-help messages and pastors who engage in exposition of the Bible leave the deep waters out of sermons. One of the major problems in Christianity today, at least in the West, is the church that uses Sunday service not to recharge the Christian, but to lure in the unconverted. These churches deliver shallow sermons that might avoid being off-putting to new believers, but don't nourish the souls of believers. Others fear too many churches now focus on entertainment rather than doctrine and discipleship. Those thirsting for doctrinal truth will go elsewhere, and those being entertained are not receiving the spiritual strengthening that's needed to survive in an increasingly secular world that's progressively more hostile to faith and religion. Too many American Christians are nominal Christians, professing a faith they live only superficially among millennials where authenticity is sacrosanct, a casual feel-good Christianity offers no allure at all. All of this portends ill for not only faith in America, but in the American form of government itself. 
A U.S. attorney, as uh, U.S. attorney William Barr recently warned in a speech at Notre Dame University, the secular project has itself become a religion pursued with a religious fervor. It is taking on all the trappings of religion, including inquisitions and excommunication. Those who defy the creed risk of figuratively burning at the stake. Social, educational and professional ostracism and exclusion waged through lawsuits and savage social media. He continued, today in the face of all the increasing pathology Instead of addressing the underlying cause, we have cast the state in the role of the alleviator of bad consequences. We call on the state to mitigate the social costs of personal misconduct and irresponsibility. The call comes for more and more social programs to deal with this wreckage. And while we think we're solving problems, we're underwriting them. We start with an untrammeled freedom and we end up with the dependence of the coercive state on whom we depend. George Washington declared religion and morality to be the indispensable supports of our republic. And yes, it is the constitutional republic. John Adams argued our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Renowned British statesman Edmund Burke explained why this is so, asserting men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there must be without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of uh, intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Religion teaches us to tame the natural man, to elevate the spiritual above the carnal. It teaches us morality, compassion, humility, tolerance, and charity. In a religious society, civilized men controls himself because he pursues a higher purpose. The law is there as a safety net. When religion is abandoned or worse, shunned and persecuted, society devolves into one based on power rather than morality. We're already seeing the consequences of a nation slowly abandoning its faith. 60 million abortions, nearly half of America's children born out of wedlock, wedlock, suicide and drug abuse on the rise, sociopathic violence from those detached from their own humanity and so on. So the question is this, will America return to liberty rooted in religion or will abandonment of the faith continue rendering us slaves to almighty government? Went a little long in this segment. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we're going to hear from Mike Gonzalez. He's senior fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. We'll talk about China's effort to control what Americans think and say. More on that a bit later. Rapper Conway West is uh, one of the biggest pop culture personalities of our time. His critically acclaimed and chart-topping music, his premium fashion line, controversial public persona, blunt political opinions, and his marriage to Kim Kardashian West... Keep the Chicago hip-hop artist consistently in the news. Well, last week, he finally released his much-teased and highly-anticipated album, Jesus is King. In much the same fashion as anything West does, the reaction to an album full of gospel music and theological lyrics has been enormous and polarizing. Some Christians see his life as just the highs and lows of an extreme and public display of what it looks like to walk with God over the course of a life. Others may see his uh, conversion as more of a linear event that culminated sometime in the past year, which included this album and also the beginning of his hosting pop-up Christian services around the country. How you understand his conversion probably depends on the spiritual tradition that you come from. 
um, one of the hosts of the hit music podcast, uh, Dissect, uh, Femi Outland points out that if you come from more of a classic evangelical background, there's a lot to focus on that's um, uh, on this kind of conversion uh, story and this kind of momentary born again, born from above kind of experience where everything changes. You have this overwhelming sense of emotion or thought that is just radically different before and after. But not all Christians have the same understanding of conversion. Now, I'm not going to go into that, but I did spend some time earlier today listening to uh, Con- Kanye West's music, a couple of the songs, God Is and I think it's closed on Sunday as the other. And I have to tell you, I am very impressed that this young man seems to get it. The theology was sound. What he had to say demonstrated that he is serious about his faith. I posted, in fact, on the Georgine Rice Show website and my own personal Facebook page, I should say, uh, both Facebook pages, um, an excerpt from an interview he did in which he is on a plane with a very popular host whose name I, I don't even know. Uh, but he is asked about his faith. Some of the music is performed. And I tell you, it really is a, an, a, an amazing demonstration of this young man who has experienced something quite remarkable in his relationship to God. Now, you don't have to like Kanye West. You don't have to like his music. Uh, but I was remind I was first of all encouraged. And I was reminded that God uses people who are very unlikely and unusual circumstances um, and my prayer for him is that he doesn't make this a public persona, but that he continues to grow deep in his own personal faith. And it isn't somehow connected with his celebrity in a way that ultimately he flames out. But in Christianity Today, there was an interesting uh, column that pointed out the New Testament teaches us not to second guess surprising conversions. And they write that uh, this is Patrick Schreiner. Long before Kanye, even the most unexpected believers like Paul himself point us Toward acceptance over suspicion, there was the sudden transformation of Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. There was the uh, centurion Cornelius, who is visited uh, by Peter, and his whole household comes uh, comes to faith. There are examples throughout Scripture of individuals who were completely sh- uh, shocking to the uh, church at that time as having come to faith in Christ. And it was understood because they received the Holy Spirit in the same way that the Jews did in Jerusalem, the way the um, uh, Samaritans did, and then ultimately the Gentiles did, that God had actually um, broadened the tent to the degree that there were those who were never imagined uh, to have been uh, worthy of that kind of um, opportunity were included in the body of Christ. I would encourage you, rather than second-guessing and uh, being skeptical, I, I have no idea what's going on in his household, but the more I hear him speak, the more I listen to his music, there's a, a, a genuine faith there. And again, I, I just pray a hedge of protection around him so that his celebrity doesn't somehow undermine the work that God has begun in his uh, in his life. If you have the opportunity, let me encourage you. You can listen to some of the music on YouTube. Again, it's not the style that I prefer, but I was very impressed. God Is is one of the songs, and he literally talks about who his understanding of God is. And I'm telling you, it is uh, biblical, and it's... Uh, it's consistent with Orthodox Christianity. The other one, uh, the other song, which I think is closed on Sunday, it's focused on making the, the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's Day. He and his family don't do anything else. That is the day that's designated for worship and serving the Lord. I, I was impressed. Don't be surprised to imagine or to learn that God is doing some significant things in life, in the lives of people you cannot imagine here and all across the globe that exceeds our expectation, that shatters our skepticism, but reveals the grace of God 
and the uh, the power of God to to minister to people uh, that we don't expect. So I'm encouraged by it. I'm praying for Kanye West and his family that not only he would come to uh, a deep and profound, not just faith, but a walk with God, but that others will as well. His family and others whose uh, lives he has the opportunity to intersect with that most of us never will. Anyway, I'd encourage you to check that out. Kanye West's uh, album, Jesus Is, really quite uh, quite interesting. Check it out. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Mike Gonzalez. He is Senior Fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. China is uh, trying to control what Americans think and say, what they produce, and so on. Can they do that? We'll talk with uh, Mr. Gonzalez about that in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the headline in The National Interest, a publication that uh, my next guest has written for, they make the statement, China wants to control what the American people think. Well, can they do that? Is that even possible? Well, Mike Gonzalez, who is senior fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy, says that is precisely what China wants to do. And he writes, Russia has drawn a lot of criticism for its heavy-handed manipulation of U.S. social media, and deservedly so. But almost unnoticed, another nation has been trying to control what Americans think by censoring free expression at our universities, on the internet, in the media, and movies, and even by sports clubs. And that, of course, is China. Joining us to talk about that is Mike Gonzalez, again, Senior Fellow at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg recently pointed out in an October 17th speech at Georgetown University that Beijing is trying to do nothing less than impose its speech restrictions on the rest of the world, and that includes the United States. Tell us a bit about it. Yes. So, right. So we focus on the Russians all the time, and we should focus on the Russians. What they did in our elections was was really uh, over the top. But China, much more quiet about it, gets away with it. And with China, everywhere, right? So they buy, they, they indirectly own some radio stations. Uh, they, 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 they censor what uh, our, our movies, our movie scripts, what we watch here at home, what we Americans watch, the American movies that we watch, have been put through a Chinese censor. Uh, they, they, of course, tell the NBA what to say and what not to say. And the NBA, you know, we saw what happened two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and they do the same thing with our universities. They, they, they have these things called Confucius Institutes. Uh, they give uh, universities a lot of money, you know, millions of, millions of dollars, which universities need and want. And they say, but look, uh, they, this is, there are some limits in the things you can discuss. You cannot discuss Taiwan, Taiwan's independence. You cannot discuss uh, uh, what happened at Tiananmen Square in '89. You cannot discuss our, discuss our human rights violations. You cannot discuss Tibet uh, or Xinjiang, you know, where there are some uh, uh, some uh, concentration camps for Muslim Uyghurs or Hong Kong. A whole panoply of things. So yeah, so they're very successful at it, and they do it legally. Yeah, it's it's really quite American. What China uh, Chinese communist leaders want Americans to do is present a sanitized picture of China, which isn't an accurate picture at all. Right. So they want they want us to believe that China is just like France. That China is like a large France uh, with 1.4 million people, billion people with a B. Uh, but but China isn't. China's government is highly repressive. 
In China, if you say something against the government, you go to prison, you get put in a dungeon, you, don't, you do not have the freedom to practice your religion. Uh, right now, just today, they said that they get to pick who the Dalai Lama's replacement is. Well, no, defending Buddhism as a religion has nothing to do with the state. They don't get to pick who the Dalai Lama's replacement is. But, but, but this is, so, so China is, is, is highly repressed. I mean, it's run by a communist party. And yet, most Americans see, when they watch a movie, um, what they see of China, as, as you said, a very sanitized version of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you write that in his Georgetown speech, Zuckerberg offered a stark choice. The global Internet, he predicted, will be operated either with American or Chinese ethics. He vowed to run his company on American ethics. It amounted to a remarkable turnaround for a man who has seen his company as not uh, really American, but transnational. And it, it really is a, a significant point that he makes that there are decisions that are being made now that will determine the uh, filter through which information comes from the uh, worldview of the, the freedom that America cherishes or that of the Chinese government that cherishes repression. Right. And this is something that, that I think Zuckerberg should be applauded for. Yes. You know, uh, you know the joke that a, a conservative is a liberal who was mugged by reality. Well, you know, a, 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 a sovereignist is a, a, a former globalist who was mugged by China. Just a year ago, Zuckerberg went to Congress, and, you know, to hear him speak, there was nothing American about Facebook. It was just an you know, transnational company with, with no American values. Today, he's come to realize that, no, he wants Facebook to be run with American respect for freedom of expression, American respect for freedom of privacy, American respect for freedom of religion, all these things. And so it is important. You know, Chinese principles, and by, by Chinese, obviously, I mean the, the, the communist leader, right, right. leadership, not the Chinese people, are not the same thing as our values. They're, they're very different. In fact, he uh, makes the point that China is building its own Internet focused on very different values. And the, the, the phrase is being coined, the splinter net, in which some information comes through the American model, some comes through the Chinese model, which are very, very different. Yeah, if you're if you're the government of Cuba or, or the government of Venezuela or the government of Russia or the government of Belarus, you want to use the Chinese model. You want to to have sensors. You have to have filters in which things that you do not want your citizens to hear or read, you know, are blocked out. Uh, in our system, there's nothing blocked out. You know, you can say anything, and stop to you know that you go on Twitter. You see criticism of Donald Trump. Constantly and repeatedly, and nobody blocks that out. That's not the same thing in China with Xi Jinping. Now, um, he used this dilemma over uh, China to put um, uh, put our own hot-button debates into perspective. Are you encouraged that, as I mentioned early on, that there are those who in, pos- in positions of influence who are starting to get it, and uh, Zuckerberg being one example, but are there others? And are you encouraged that we are finally waking up to the threat that China does and could, in fact, pose? Well, yes, well, on the Chinese thing, but you know, the way he recast the whole thing in our own domestic debate, you know, he went back to Congress last week, and he got a grilling from liberals like Ocasio-Cortez, who said to him, well, no, you must, if the politician lies, you must block that out, you must censor that out. And he quite rightly said, lying is bad, but if a politician lies, he should, you know, the American public should know that. You know, it, it, he doesn't want Facebook to be in a position in which it is editing out content that, for example, Casio Cortez is a politician himself. If she lied, if she were to lie, I think that we want to know that, right? We want to hear that so we can debate it. 
And I think that nicely, um, uh, Zuckerberg, he said, we have, you know, we're having a debate of what, what American values means, but we're in the same ballroom having this debate. You know, China and us, we, we cannot have that. The Chinese government, again, is a communist party. It's communist China. We don't have the same values. There's no big debate to be had. Yeah. You point out that someone else who's fighting back is filmmaker Quentin Tarantino. Uh, China has not released his film, uh, but his defiance earned him the backing of the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who himself has been active on the Hollywood front as well, giving us a glimmer of hope. Yeah, I think with Tarantino, I don't like Tarantino, but what he did was great. He said to China, you don't want to run my movie? Don't run my movie. Do what? I'm not going to change my movie, you know, on your orders so you can run it. If you don't want to run it, I'll make less money. I got enough money. And I think that is what I'd like to see Katzenberg and James Cameron and everybody else do in Disney. I want to say to China, no. And that's what Pompeo did. You know, Pompeo went and spoke to the Motion Picture Association, and he said to his Hollywood moguls, I'm going to try to get you, you know, more access to Chinese markets. There's about only 40 American movies allowed in China a year, so I'm gonna, you know, I want to get you more access to that to that very great, huge market. But in exchange, for heaven's sake, stop submitting scripts for censorship. I think what's worse, looking, what's worse than submitting screens, uh, scripts for censorship is when they don't have to because they have self-censored themselves. When when a studio already produces a movie in Attenborough boasted about this about five years ago, said, they don't make any changes in my movies. I know what they want. He's produced stuff that he knows offend the Communist Party in, in, in Beijing. That is even worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I so appreciate your drawing this to our attention, and we'll certainly watch with interest what other leaders and people of influence in Hollywood and elsewhere are doing to prevent uh, the, what they call the splinter net, in which we have two different um, funnels through which information comes, one with an emphasis on the freedom of speech and expression and the other uh, with censorship. Mike Gonzalez, thank you so much for talking with us. Anytime. I, I always find you a great interviewer. Thank you so I much. Have, me on. have a good night. Again, uh, Mike yeah. Gonzalez is senior fellow at the uh, Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, today happens, well, actually tomorrow will be Reformation Day. It was October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther, a monk and a scholar, had struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented indulgence scale. The story has all the makings of a Hollywood blockbuster and here's the cast. First, there is the young bishop, too young by church laws, Albert Mainz, or Mines, depending on your pronunciation. Not only was the bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional archbishopric over Mines. Uh, this, too, was against church laws. So Albert appealed to the pope in Rome, Leo X, uh, from the de' Medici family. Leo X greedily allowed uh, his tastes to exceed his financial resources Enter the artists and sculptors, Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert of Mines appealed to a papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with the papal blessing, would sell indulgences for past, present, and future sins. All of this, um, all of this uh, sickened the monk Martin Luther. Now, can you buy uh, your way to heaven? Luther had to speak out. 
Why October 31st? Well, November 1st held a special place in the church calendar as All Saints Day. More on that in a few moments. On the 1st of November, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds, if not thousands, of years off time in purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right, or perhaps biblical is the better word. Martin Luther was a scholar. He took his quill in hand. He dipped it in his inkwell and penned his 95 theses on October 31st, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate, to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. It wasn't really intended to uh, facilitate a reformation that was contrary to the uh, church uh, leadership. The 95 thesis sparked far more than a debate. The thesis also revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation. It needed a reformation. The church and the world would never be quite the same. One of Luther's 95 theses simply declares the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that just stating the obvious? But apparently it had to be said. That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago prepared over the pages of, um, or rather papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Tradition always brings about systems of works, of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of medieval Roman Catholicism as well. Didn't Christ himself say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? A Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is liberation or rather Reformation Day? It is the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Cox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word as the only authority for faith and life and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing, and it led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It is the celebration of a theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. So Reformation Day is celebrated. It reminds us to be thankful for the past and to the monk turned reformer, certainly imperfect by many measures, like me and like you. What's more, this day reminds us of our duty, our obligation to keep the light of the gospel at the center of all we do. So that is tomorrow, Reformation Day. And then there is All Saints Day. The name Halloween is a blending of the words All Hallows Eve for evening, referring to the evening before All Saints Day on November the 1st. The term hallow means holy. For example, we recite it in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, early in church history, Christians began to celebrate people who they considered outstanding in holiness, specifically those who were martyred for their faith. However, with time, the growing number of men and women who were killed for being Christians made it impossible to assign a separate celebration for each of them. Thus, various churches made an effort to select a common day to commemorate all of these saints. Some churches celebrated the saints on the Sunday after Pentecost, which is Orthodox churches. They continue to celebrate the Sunday of all saints on that day, while others chose the Friday after Easter. On May the 13th, 609 or 610 AD, Pope Boniface 
the fourth, I believe, dedicated the Pantheon uh, in Rome, originally built to honor all the gods of ancient Rome, to the Christian saints, and he established this date as the yearly celebration. Over a century later, sometime between 731 and 741 A.D., the date for commemorating the saints was changed to November 1st. All Saints Day, also called All Hallows Day, was formally added to the church calendar in A.D. 835, By that time, Christians recognized as saints not only the martyrs, but also the confessors, those who had confessed their faith by exceptional holiness but were not martyred. Well, it's a popular um, notion that Halloween originated with a pagan holiday called Sanhaim. Uh, The fact is, All Saints Day and the other both fall on November 1st, and that's led many people to draw the connection between the two, claiming in particular that Sanhaim influenced the establishment of All Saints Day, but that's... Uh, That is not the case. The uh, first, Sanhaim, was an ancient pagan festival. In order to learn anything about it, you're forced to rely on northern Celtic folklore. Well, despite the fact that nothing is really known about the pre-Christian pagan practices associated with it, some scholars assert that the church established All Saints Day in an effort to Christianize the pagan festival. But there are several reasons to disagree with that. The celebration was a tradition limited to the northern Celtic regions. And even if remnants of pagan practices remained in the remote parts of Christian lands that that were already mentioned, they were probably not of particular concern to the Christian leadership in Rome. And it's quite possible that November 1st was chosen so that the many pilgrims who traveled to Rome to commemorate the saints could be fed more easily after the harvest than in the spring. And Irish Christians originally celebrated the saints on the 20th of April, so before the establishment of All Saints Day, it's more likely that they remembered their dead in April. Um, rather than during the November 1st celebration that was pagan. And the idea that uh, Sandhaim was a festival of the dead was po- um, popularized by Sir James Fraser in his famous work, The Golden Bough, a study in magic and religion. However, he seems to have confused the traditions associated with All Saints Day with ancient Sandhaim practices. It's more likely that the Christian holiday of All Saints Day uh, introduced a focus on the dead to Sandhaim rather than the other way around. In any event, there are days that the church has acknowledged um, as somewhat holy days uh, around Halloween that has uh, trumped them all, at least in Western culture. Tomorrow, Reformation Day, November the 1st, All Saints Day, remembering those who are martyred in the faith or those whose lives are exemplary, exemplary in terms of their walk of faith. So now you know. We're going to take a, what, 20... Two hour, 22 hour break, but we'll be back. I want to thank James Blind for producing, engineering a portion of today's program and Clark Hilton the remainder of today's program. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and happy Eve of Reformation Day. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.